Hey there, it's Kristen Crockett, and you are listening to The Plastic Couch, a podcast to help you find clarity and confidence in your life. Most of us remember someone from back in the day with a couch they kept covered with plastic. It was meant to protect and preserve the couch for tomorrow, but the plastic was hot and uncomfortable, and it kept everyone from enjoying it. So what does the plastic represent for you in your life? Is it perfection, fear, or something else? And what are you preventing yourself from enjoying, or better yet, from being? I'm your host, Kristen Crockett, and I'm here to help you with the tools to get clarity on your path to you and to help you see what's on the other side of the plastic. So before we start today's episode, I have some really incredible news for you. My new book is out called The Diversity in Humanity, and I cannot wait for you to read it. This is a multi-author book with so many of us from across the country that are contributing our thoughts on how to create a more harmonious workplace. So head to Amazon, and I cannot wait for you to read it. So thank you in advance for taking your time to read it and for leaving your reviews. And with that, let's jump into this episode of the Plastic Couch Podcast. So today we are talking with Aaron Garrett. Today's podcast is all about responsibility and what happens when, as a kid, your responsibility gets leveled up to the point where you are actually taking care of your siblings, that you become the head of the household at nine years old. So we are talking to Aaron Garrett about his journey, his story. This is a two-parter because it is so rich and deep, just thinking about all the things that occurred in his life and led up to that moment where he was cooking for his siblings at nine years old. And we're going to hear all about how that level of responsibility has impacted his professional life, his relationships, and so much more. So let's jump into this episode of the Plastic Couch Podcast with Aaron Garrett. Aaron, welcome to the Plastic Couch Podcast. Thank you, Kristen, for having me. I appreciate it. Love the podcast. All right. So we can kind of get to know your story. Tell us a little bit about your family unit. Who was in your household? Okay. So me, my mom, my father, he passed away when I was four. And then we had a her boyfriend, her long-term boyfriend. He ended up passing away when I was about, ooh, gosh, nine, 10, somewhere in there. And then I have four younger brothers. That was primarily our core unit, but it was our mom and four younger brothers. We had some, we had a grandmother and aunt and uncles who were around for sure. But our primary unit was my mother and her five boys. Okay. So do you remember your father? He died 1988 when I was four. Just turned four. Yeah, I remember that. So just a few years ago, we got photos of him, my brothers and I. We found our father's side of the family and we were able to get some photos. But up to that point, we didn't know what he looked like. No idea what he looked like. And my memory of him, I have two. One is the funeral. I remember being in my grandmother's Buick with the like velvet, she had burgundy velvet seats. And I'm sitting in the backseat watching the city roll by as we drive down the highway. And I remember being at the funeral in the pew. We weren't up close. I remember we weren't 
toward the front of it, and we were maybe toward the center. And it was me and my brother. He was three. But my grandmother took us. And then the other memory I have of my father is not so great, but I do remember him hitting my mother. We were living in projects and I had to be, this had to be maybe just before he passed away because if I was four when he passed away, so this is, I had to be three years old or so. And we were living in the projects and I remember there were, it was this whirlwind of chaos that ensued right after that because there were other women in the house and I think two were my mother's sisters and another one must have been a friend of hers. And I remember them rushing him out at how like, Get out, get out, get out, and pushing him out of the house. But I remember her lip, and I was sitting, I don't know, I was sitting in a corner or sitting against the wall or something like that. But that's my memory of my father. So, what's that like growing up with two very distinct memories and without even remembering his face or having a lot of positive memories along with that? Like, what did you feel about your dad? I felt nothing. Like, even that violent incident. I don't know if I fully process it as a kid, right? That's a memory that I have and one that I recalled as an adult. But at the time, nothing. I have in it's in it, I guess it's appropriate that I had no memory of his physicality. I don't remember what he looked like. He was this blur. I don't remember parks or anything like that. So my feelings for my father were zero. So was it zero or was it a void? Because those are two different, yeah. very distinct feelings. I guess you're right. Yeah. So I more like a void, right? Like he wasn't there. It just, he was, but then he wasn't and I didn't miss anything. At least that's how I feel. I don't feel like I missed anything because I guess zero would be, there were some positive experiences, some negative experiences and it all balanced out, but I don't have any real emotional ties to him. I don't recall anything that would have me be like, oh, I miss my dad. So I guess avoid. Yeah. So what about the idea of a dad? So let's talk about your stepfather a little bit, how that comes into play. What was your feeling and experience like with your stepfather? The idea of a dad didn't really occur to me as something as a positive because my stepfather, my mother's boyfriend, really, he was violent to me. My brothers have a different experience and it's their story to tell, but I've tried to talk to them about it in the past and they come up with, oh, he took us here. And remember, we had that puppy and we went here and we were over there. And I'm like, no, I don't remember any of that. <laughs> right. You know, I remember cowering. I remember being afraid. I remember the violence, the yelling. I remember the beer smell. Oh, God, I remember the beer smell. Used to drink, they called it rock gut, Colt 45s. Just, I remember that stuff. And between a void of my father and my biological father, and then this just very negative experience with my mother's boyfriend, fathers didn't do it for me. And I don't recall as a child, I don't recall going over a friend's house and there being a dad there. That didn't happen until I was 14, 15 years old when I encountered someone with a father. So for me, there was never anything to miss. There was no throw me on your back, carry me around, none of that. I don't miss any of that. But I can't recall a friend's father growing up. I never thought about that. Yeah. It was it's always a, women. It's a really interesting concept, you know, of, with no men around. So with your stepdad, because you're the oldest, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes... It's a distinct difference with our memories because of our age. And other yeah. times it's based on our experience. Which one was it for you? If for me, it was experience. Because my brother and I are one year apart. 
So we should have the same memories, pretty much, right? Except for when we're really young. We should have the same experiences and memories because we were never separated as kids. My mother's boyfriend saw something in me that I didn't see in myself at the time. And I, I he took that out on me, you know, which he, was being gay. I didn't have the words for that when, you know, at nine, 10 years old, I have no idea what any of this is. I really don't. I'm just out here living my life. And here's this man calling me fruitcake, fruit cup, princess, sissy, faggot, beating me for not living up to whatever expectations. I remember there were these boys who were much bigger than me and my brothers and wanting to fight us. And I came in and got help and I caught hell for that. And that was the time he sit in a chair and it was very interrogation style, right? He's sitting across from me, elbows on his knees, leaning in. And I can smell that damn beer. And he's calling me princess. And then I respond. And then he beat me for responding. And then tell me that you don't go by that. That ain't your name. Don't let nobody call you princess. Stuff like that, right? And then he called me princess again. And when I wouldn't respond, he beat me for not responding. Was this just very hard experience with him that happened? And yeah, I would say that was from Oh my gosh, I don't even know how old I was. He probably came in when I was about six and then died when I was about 10. So those years, somewhere around there. It forces you, like it just builds, you You just become hard. That's all like it, yeah. you just harden up and put this shell up. It's fascinating how different of an experience. Cause he, my brothers can tell you about a time he took them out to some farm with his side of the family and they got deer and hogs and all this stuff and I don't know where I was. I And honestly, I don't know where my mother was doing all that. I know that she didn't like my behavior either. She made comments calling me sissy as well. But I don't know if she knew or where she was when he was beating me like that. I imagine in the other room and just shrugged her shoulders at her, you know? Mm. It's a very, like, unprotected feeling as a kid, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, there was no one. I felt there was no one who would protect me. I didn't have anybody to go to. I didn't have anybody that I could confide in. I had an uncle who ended up passing away when we were young, but he would be the closest to that. And I do recall he had tried at one point, I think, to get us to live with him or work with our mom to get us out of the situation we were in. But that caused a lot of strife and a lot of uproar in the family between them. And he was gay. And so she being homophobic, if you will, was probably not for that. But that would be the closest at the time that I had to anybody that was safe. Teachers, books, threw myself into books. That was probably my greatest response to that. I would do, there was this, um, when he was alive, I could do this great books club. It was less time in the house. After school, we would sit around and read for an hour and talk about the book. Here I am, this like, third, fourth grader, a little younger, wanting to stay at school to read. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of lame, but that was, it was safer than home. It was better than home, you know? So books were, they were your escape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love to read. I would throw myself into all of it, anything I could. And I couldn't tell you a title or remember anything, but what I read through in that period, but I, whatever I could get my hands on, I'd read. So I had this, father who was this void. And again, this one negative, really a negative memory of him hitting my mother. But as a kid, it's not a negative or positive. It's something that's happening. I'm not thinking about it in either way. And then a very negative experience with my mother's boyfriend, stepfather. 
And then I have these two uncles, right? Night and day, absolutely night and day. One uncle is my mother's older brother. And then the other uncle is the younger one. Like the younger one was the one who was like, whenever he would walk into a room, you just lit up. You, you really did. And in fact, I wrote this essay that got published in a small book anthology last year. And one of the lines in the essay is, the uncle that lived is the one who should have died. And I still really do believe that to this day. I know that's not a nice thing to say, but it's the truth. And emotions me. emotions aren't always, they don't have to be nice, right? <laughs> it's, it's how we feel. It is. It's how I feel. And it's my truth. That really is how I feel and what I believe. Because even to this day, there's nothing he's added, no value add to my life. I don't have a relationship with the uncle that's still alive. I don't have a relationship with him at all. And my memories of him, again, are mostly negative. Now, I don't recall him calling me faggot or sissy or anything like that, but he was violent. And I mean violent, beating us, beat me and my brothers down one time. Our faces were swollen, locked me and my brother into a room. And that's how we learned. And we couldn't come out until we could tie our shoes. I learned how to tie my shoes by being locked into a room. And I remember my brother and I crying and crying and we're being told, shut up, don't come out, you can't come out until you tie your shoes. And eventually we learned how to tie our shoes, but under a lot of duress, like it's not a pleasurable experience. Even now to this day, if I can slip into shoes, I'd rather slip into shoes. I have shoes. I'm looking at my shoes right now that I took off from work. They're still tied up and I'm not going to untie them until they get to the point where they have to be pulled back together again. They're going to remain like this until... Because even now, I still shake a little bit when I tie my shoes. It's that um, trauma coming up. Yeah. It's that serious trauma that pops and up. And I didn't realize it until recently where I'm like, why am I shaking like this? Every time I tie my shoes, I shake. And I at first, I attributed it to just being trying to get in and get the loops or whatever because of my fingers and I'm just struggling. But really, it's because I'm back into that little boy. Every time I tie my shoes, I'm right back there. My other uncle, my God, Kristen. I have this very vivid memory of him, and I'm not lying. It was like some shit from a movie. So Chicago Transit used to have this summer program where you could go work for them for the summer, and they, they would get you help you get your CDL, and it was just the summer job. And he would do it between college. He went to Tuskegee, and in the summers, he would come up, work CTA, and go back. And I remember leaving school, and it, no one else was out. So this must have been when I was going to check on my mother. Because I don't recall anyone else on the block. I'm walking down the street and I see this like glittery something down the, at the end of the block, right? And it's this figure and it's a white shirt and I see blue pants. And then when the sun is no longer reflecting on what I now know as my, was my uncle's like name tag, I see his face come from behind that like reflection and I ran, like bolted, <laughs> jumped up into his arm. And he was just, he would take us around the city. He would talk to us. He was stern and I was okay with his sternness. His sternness didn't bother me. I remember getting a spanking from him, but it wasn't a beating. He didn't leave marks on me. He didn't leave my face swollen. But I'm talking back or whatever. He'd slap me on the little hands or slap me on the butt. That's, that never deterred me from wanting to be around him. But the other things that these other men did, yeah, I never wanted to. I hated being around them. Yeah. And if kids know, we know the adults' hearts, like we know the heart of people, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we know it's, it's this indescribable feeling that we know when someone 
has your best interest at heart or just or genuinely that they love you that's what it is like there's just an authentic love there and you don't have to be a certain kind of way you don't have to meet certain expectations they will love you and so that is what i felt from him like a genuine love so when he died that was hard that was hard i mean genuinely just was there was no one else in the family after that at least for me yeah so a huge part of this is like people embracing you and you're just a kid, right? Kid right. trying right. to find your way through life. And people are treating you a certain way. And for you, it was it based on the fact that you were gay? Is that how you felt as a kid? See, I don't know if I felt like in terms of that, because I didn't understand that. I didn't know what gay was until I was 14 years old. And I saw it. It was a crazy moment. We were in health class. And the health instructor is going through the sexualities and he is like, there's heterosexuality. And he was like, yeah. And then he's talked about bisexuality. And I remember him shrugging his shoulders like, you know, yeah, some folks like, you know, both. And then he got to homosexuality and read the definition. He was like, you don't want to be no homo. You don't want to be no homo. That was my introduction to that was when I first learned I was 13. And I was like, what? I'm a homo? What? And, uh, and But I was also very scared. And I remember leaning back into my seat and my face is getting hot and I'm scared people can see me because he, the instructor was just like, you don't want to be this. So for me growing up, it was never about whether they thought I was a sissy, faggot, gay or anything like that. I just thought they hated me. Like just, I don't know what I was doing. Like they just hated me. And I never, you know what's crazy is that I don't recall necessarily trying to change. I think one time my mother said something about the way that I walked. And so I was trying to be conscious of my walk. I would still go play jump rope with the girls. Even after they just beat me for jumping rope with the girls, I go right back out and jump rope with the girls because that's what I wanted to do. That's where I felt comfortable. Yeah. I will say it's, if there's anything like my goodness, like it gets better. I know that's so cheesy. That's so cheesy, right? <laughs> like, and I, I remember even when the campaign came around, the LGBTQ campaign, it gets better. But it actually does for me, at least for me, it got better for me. I'll say that. And it only because I finally realized I'm the adult. It clicked where I was talking to what was really like a coach, like a mental health coach that they have at our job through this app. And it was about money. And so... I was like, yeah, you know, I'm trying to figure out, trying to get a budget, all this stuff. And I was like, I have this bad habit. Whenever I get my check, I spend it all right away. And so the coach and I are talking and he's like, what do you think that came from? Right? Like, why do you feel like you have to spend all your money? I was like, because it's going to go away. I want to hurry up and get these things before it goes away. It's like, who's going to take it? What are you talking about? It's going to go away. And this takes me back to my mother. This is crazy. Sorry. I didn't mean, I forgot about this story, but I have to tell this story. I'm a Capricorn. And one thing we're good, we're known for is how we're disciplined with our money. And as a kid, I was very good about my money. I used to collect cans and would take them down to the little machine, get the money and put it in a shoebox. So whenever I would see my grandmother's house or someone else's house, I would take their cans and I would put my money in the little shoebox. And I don't know, one day I looked up and I had a bunch of green money in there and I wasn't doing anything with it. I didn't care. And I was in my room 
and I'm organizing my money because Capricorn. So I'm putting the ones together and also <laughs> gay. Didn't know it at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and so there I am organizing my money and putting the fives with the tens and all the stuff. And I have the brown, the little pennies and the quarters and all that stuff. So I'm organizing the shoebox and my mom walks in and she sees this because I never said anything. I don't know what it was about. I knew better than to say anything. I don't know how I knew, but I knew not to tell people that I had money. The adults who took me, like it, was, it would be my uncle. I told you that was like night and day, the great one. He would be the one to take me to drop the cans off and help cash them out. So that's how I was able to even get this money. And one day she walks in, she sees this shoebox. I'm on the floor organizing it all. And I had it hidden under my bed. She had no idea. She sees this and she's, she goes off, right? She's, we out here struggling. We need milk. We need this. And you got money. Uh. She takes my money hmm. and she doesn't take it all. She took a few of the green. Now I was mad. I was like, ah! <laughs> you know, and yeah. so she takes it. And then a few days later, she's back in there for more. And then a few more days later, she's in there for more. And now I'm down to just coins and I'm mad. Like, I'm like, what the? And so then she starts taking the quarters and the pennies. never touched the pennies. But I always took the quarters, dimes, and nickels, and I had nothing left. What I started doing was when I would get the can money, the money from the cans, I would spend it on me. That would be the first thing I do. Because if I didn't spend it on me, somebody else was going to take it. And so I carried that with me up until about four or five years ago. As soon as I would get my check, I would spend it right away. And it really genuinely took me that moment with that coach to be like, she was like, there's no one to take your money now. No one's going to take it. And the first time, and it was, and it took me a while to get to that point. Like, I'm not going to say that was this overnight moment. And the next day I had all my check did not happen like that. It took me until you know, about 18 months before I started having money in my check. By the time I got paid again, it was stacking up. And I was like, oh my God. Okay. And if yes. anybody asks me for money, I could say no. Yeah, I'm it's- in charge now. It's so funny. It's like the connection between money is honestly, it's everything from our childhood. I always, everyone knows this. I'm always like, everything goes back to your childhood, right? Mm -hmm. That is super important. So for you going back, you were like, okay, so now I'm the adult. Yeah. And you had that realization. Yep. I'm in charge of me now. And so that's what the idea of it gets better means. Other people don't necessarily get better. I still deal with issues around homophobia, even within my family. I still have other issues that I'm navigating, people who are mean, people who are abusive. Those things still exist. But now I can choose to walk out of those spaces if I want to. And I do that. I have an abusive eye. I literally got up and walked out of the house, got in my car and left and say anything to anybody. And they're calling me. "Ah, Nope. Nope. And you won't see me again. You won't see me again until you understand what happened. You know, if you're willing to talk, we can talk, but I'm not being in those spaces anymore. And I don't have to be in those spaces anymore. Right, right, right. That is probably my favorite thing that's happening right now that I'm realizing and growing into. It's like, you're the adult. You're in charge. I love it, Aaron. And that's my favorite part about being an adult, too. It's like, you you get to choose. You get to choose. What energy you want to put up with and what you don't. You get to choose where you want to go. If you don't want to go, don't go. Do not go. Don't be there. Don't stay there. Listen, I have walked out of rooms now. I really have. I've genuinely walked out of rooms. I'm out with friends and I don't like their friends. I'm out of here. 
You There's walked out of an interview. Me. We didn't even Look, talk yeah. about that. <laughs> Look, you are not offering remote work. I'm out of here. Yeah. Out of here. Yep. Don't have to be here. I don't like the way you interview. I don't like the way, you know, all of it. That, it's a beautiful thing when you realize that you are in charge now. This is all on you. It's scary. Not going to lie. Like, sometimes right. I'm like, wait, am I messing? When you're down and out, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> Who can I blame for this? Because I'm broke. <laughs> or, you know, you're feeling sad. But honestly, it to be in charge of your, or your own energy, to lead it, to decide to be that positive energy in the room. That's one thing that I've changed in my life is that with my nieces and nephews, listen, I'm trying to be like the uncle who was the light for me. I really am. I try to do, and I really do. I take them to new things. Y'all want to go to this museum? Let's go. Let's go try this restaurant out. Talk to me. They confide in me in things that they can't confide into their mom and dad or their grandmother, whomever. And we not promise them, this is between you and me. Unless you're talking to me about self-harm, I'm here. It's just right. us. No one else will know about it. It's a beautiful thing and I love it. And I'm much happier in my life right now. So that is the end of part one of Aaron's story on the Plastic Couch Podcast. We've got so much more to his life story, including how he became the head of household at just nine years old. So all of that and more on part two of Aaron's story on the Plastic Couch Podcast. (laughs) 